Today's scripture reading will be from 1 Samuel chapter 28. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And and his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he is wrapped in a robe. Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me in bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. There was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have enough strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. 
Well, good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Today I would like to look with you at the question, how do we deal with trials? And specifically, how do we deal with trials that are unexpected? When I was in seminary, I decided that I was going to run in a half marathon. And so in the springtime, I started to train pretty intensely for that half marathon. The marathon, half marathon was in May. And so I would go to the gym and I would run around on the track that was above the basketball courts. And then once it got a little bit warmer, I would, even though it was kind of cold outside, I would run outside. And sometimes I would run for hours outside. So I had some confidence that I was going to be able to finish the race and that I was prepared for this half marathon. But then I got to this half marathon in May and I realized pretty quickly I wasn't prepared. And the reason I wasn't prepared was because of two unexpected things that were part of this race. It was in May, and I had been, like I said, I had been training in that spring, and nearly every time that I had ran that spring, it had been relatively cool. But this May morning, it was like 70 degrees, very high humidity at like 8 o'clock in the morning. Completely unprepared for that. Further, I assumed that since this wasn't a cross-country race, that this was going to be a flat course. However, the course wasn't flat. There were all these bridges that you had to run up and down, and I hadn't factored that into my training. And so as a result of these two things, there's a result of the heat and the bridges, I wasn't able to run the race. I ended up finishing, but I wasn't able to run the whole time. I I think that life is like that sometimes. We have plans and goals and aspirations, and then something hits us that's unexpected, and the question is, how do we respond to that unexpected trial? Julius Caesar once said this, no one is so brave that he's not disturbed by something unexpected. As a country, we've dealt with an unexpected trial recently, and many Americans are not dealing with that trial in in a healthy, proper way. For example, from February to March, traffic to the website for the National Domestic Abuse Helpline increased by 156%. Searches for what is domestic abuse rose by 46% in the same period. There was a 64% rise in searches for the phrase domestic violence shelter and domestic abuse shelter. Of the 22 law enforcement agencies across the United States that responded to an NBC News report or request for data, 18 departments said that they had seen an uptick in domestic violence. Houston police received about 300 more domestic violence calls in March than they did in February, 20% increase approximately. Charlotte Mecklenburg, North Carolina, uh, there were about 517 additional calls related to domestic violence in March compared to the same month the previous year, 18% jump. While Phoenix police received nearly 200 more calls, an increase of nearly 6%. So we see domestic violence is increasing. We see alcohol consumption is increasing. Uh, From 
in late March, alcohol sales rose by 55% compared to sales in 2019. While this could simply be hoarding where people, you know, get, get it a lot because they feel like they're not going to be able to get it, it's clear that many Americans are abusing alcohol. Many Americans have turned to food and overeating during this time frame. Anecdotally, I've, I've heard people talking about the COVID-15 and how, you know, there's not a lot to do. We have to stay in our homes, and so we're doing a lot of eating. Pornography use is up. One report I read suggested that it was up by about 12% according to the data that they had available, and I think it may be even much higher than that. I was shocked to hear of the racism that has been rampant in our country. I was shocked to hear that a friend of mine who's an Asian American, his daughter was recently ostracized and bullied because she was an Asian American. We've seen extreme examples in our country since this virus came about of prejudice and racism towards Asian Americans. For example, there was a stabbing of three Chinese Americans at a Sam's Club in Texas There was a 16-year-old Asian-American sent to the hospital after being accused of carrying the coronavirus. There was an Asian man in San Francisco attacked while collecting cans. We've also seen the rise of many different scams, coronavirus alleged cures and uh, stimulus kind of uh, scams and all different ways that people have tried to capitalize on this misfortune and to harm those around them. Certainly the coronavirus has led to some negative responses. But there's also positive as well. We've seen, on the other hand, that this trial has brought out the best in some people. We've seen first responders and medical workers who have gone to the hospitals selflessly and risked their life to help those who are sick. We've seen the average Americans willing to share their food with neighbors, to make grocery runs for the elderly, to buy gift cards to support struggling small businesses. Spiritually, there's also been some positive news. According to an op-ed article from the Wall Street Journal, Robert Nicholson writes this, Could a rogue virus lead to a grand creative moment in America's history? Will Americans shaken by the reality of a risky universe rediscover the God who proclaimed himself sovereign over every catastrophe? A Pew Forum from April, or March 28th to April 1st, in that Pew Forum poll, 19% of Americans interviewed suggested that their faith has grown stronger or their spirituality has increased due to this coronavirus. Trials have the opportunity to either point us to good or to point us to evil. Spiritually speaking, unexpected trials can cause us to either lean into our sin or to lean into our Savior. Those are the only two options for us when we face a trial, especially an unexpected trial. And today, for just a few minutes, this is going to be our last message in the book of 1 Samuel. And I'd like to look for a few minutes at two characters in 1 Samuel. One who faced trials and leaned into his sin, and one who faced trials and leaned into his Savior. So first, the negative. 
Saul is an interesting character in the Bible because Saul is a very, very religious man. We see in chapter 14 that he makes a rash vow that none of the men, none of his men are to eat any food until they've won the victory. We see in, in one chapter before, in chapter 13, that he makes a sacrifice to God in hopes that God will give him the victory in battle. We see that in chapter 15 that after defeating the Amalekites, he's prepared to offer sacrifices of the best of the Amalekite spoils to God. We see in the passage that we're looking at today in verse 20 that Saul has not eaten anything day or night, indicating that he's probably fasting. In verse 9, we see that he cast out all the mediums and the necromancers, which are people who uh, consulted with the dead. And so he drove out all those people. And so we see all these evidences in 1 Samuel that Saul is a very, very religious man. He offers sacrifices. He makes vows. He drives out the mediums and the necromancer. But despite the fact that he's religious, he also demonstrates a fundamental unbelief and a fundamental disobedience as the default attitude of his heart. In chapter 13, as he's facing an overwhelming Philistine army, he goes to Gilgal to wait for Samuel. And when Samuel doesn't come exactly when he expects him to come, he takes matters into his own hands and he offers an unlawful sacrifice. In chapter 15, rather than obey God and destroy the Amalekites because God had decreed judgment upon them because of the way they had treated Israel in the past. Rather than destroy them, he kept some of the spoils of, of the goods, and then he tried to offer that as a sacrifice to God. And when he was confronted on that, he said, well, the, the people made me do it. They wanted to keep the spoils. I couldn't do anything about it. We see in chapter 17 that this great giant, which we talked about last week, Goliath, comes on the scene. And remember what the king was supposed to do. The king was supposed to lead the Israelites in battle, and Saul was uh, probably a giant of a man himself, not in the league of Goliath, but he was a big man, most likely, and he, if anyone was going to fight Goliath, it should have been their king and their leader, and yet rather than step up to the plate, rather than being faithful to God, he chooses to allow a little shepherd boy with a sling and some stones and a staff to go and face this giant. Finally, we get to this passage now in, in chapter 28. And leading up to this, Saul sees that David beats Goliath and he sees the victories and the, the, the favor that is on David and he is jealous to an incredible degree, and he is maniacal in his desire to kill David. And so he's been trying to kill David for quite some time. Now David has gone to the Philistines, and the Philistines are coming to attack uh, King Saul and the Israelites. And apparently the, the Philistines during this time frame were much stronger than the Israelites because it says in the text that when he saw the army, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. 
So the text tells us in verse 6 that Saul inquired of the Lord, and yet the Lord did not answer him. And it talks about a number of different ways that he tried to hear from the Lord, and the Lord was silent regarding him. And we look at this and we think to ourselves, why would God be silent? If Saul was calling out to God, why would God choose not to answer him? And I think it's clear through as we look at the contours of the story throughout 1 Samuel that Saul is not interested in following after God. And he's not interested in hearing from God or obeying God. See, Saul is in trouble. And he wants out of trouble. And so he's calling out to God as a way to get himself out of trouble, but he's really not interested in what God has to say. Why do I know that? Because we look back in the story and we see that God had decreed that Saul would be removed from the throne because of his disobedience. Now, Saul could have repented. He could have said, well, all right, I, I, I accept my judgment. I accept that I'm not going to be king in the, anymore, but I still want to serve you. And I plead with you, God, to show me mercy. But he doesn't do that. Every step of the way, he tries to subvert God's plan and to change the course of history. And so he's maniacal and delusional in his fear of David and tries to kill him. And we see one passage in chapter 23. We see that as Saul is chasing after David, Saul believes that he has David hemmed in and that he's captured him. And he makes a statement that I find very interesting. He says, the Lord has given him into our hands. Now that's interesting. First of all, now we don't know that if Saul knew that David was going to be the one that was going to be king. But we know that he sensed the Spirit of God on David. He knew that God's Spirit was on him, and that's part of why he was so angry at David. And so if God's Spirit is on him, and yet he's on David, and yet Saul is believing that God is going to allow him to destroy his anointed. I mean, I mean, it's a delusional to an nth degree that Saul would believe that God would give David into his hands when David was someone who was following after the Lord, whom the Spirit of God was upon, who was upon him. But every step of the way, Saul tries to subvert God's plan. And when God doesn't hear him, God doesn't listen. He takes matters into his own hands. And just as an aside and as a warning, if you're not interested in what God has to say, then there might be, may come a point where God chooses not to answer you. There may become a point where if we get so far away from God and so far into our sin and don't really care about what God has to say, there's really no reason for Him to speak to us. Because we know what He wants, we just don't obey. Saul knows what God wants, but he's not going to obey. And we see in this passage that even though God doesn't answer him, even though he knows that's not a good thing, and even though he knows that mediums and those who consult the dead are not of God, that they're, uh, they're not suppo- they weren't, weren't supposed to consult them, they're forbidden in the Old Testament, still he tries to take matters into his own hands and he says to his men, 
can you find me a medium? And he, he has this great idea that he's going to go and find this medium in Endor and bring up Samuel, the prophet of God, to speak to him once again. Now, what's interesting about this is Endor was some distance away from where he was at this time, and he may have even had to go through enemy territory, through the Philistine army in disguise, to get to this witch or this medium. And yet he does that. He thinks this is a good idea. And so he goes there, and this medium says to him, like, are you trying to get me in trouble? Saul decreed that there would be no more necromancers or mediums. And then Saul makes a statement, another religious statement. He basically says, I swear to God that you'll be safe, which means nothing to him because he has no reference for God. And so he gets this woman to call up Samuel. And we see in the text that this woman, is, she lets out a scream when she sees Samuel. And so we don't know exactly why that is. Maybe she wasn't expecting that this was actually going to happen, that he was actually going to be raised up from the dead to talk to, to her and to Saul. But he, she's surprised by that apparently. And so Samuel talks to Saul. And Samuel's like, why did you disturb me? And Saul says to him that what should I do, basically? God has turned his back on me. And Samuel basically says, so what do you want me to do? I mean, if God isn't answering you, I'm a prophet of God. If God has put, judged you, then what do you want me to do for you? I mean, he's trying to get around God. He's trying to subvert God's plan rather than repenting rather than crying out for mercy. And so Samuel basically says, there's, there's nothing I can do for you. You're going to be judged and you're going to die. The Philistines are going to kill you. And it's really a tragic scene as he falls down on the ground in mourning and he eats what may have been his last meal with this witch in agony. And then we're going to see shortly after that that he does in fact die an ignoble death. And what's interesting about this story is that every step of the way he finds himself fighting against God, but every step of the way, every time he experiences a trial, he has reasons, he has excuses why he doesn't believe. Remember in chapter 13, he probably said to himself, I waited for Samuel for seven days. I tried to do the right thing, and then he didn't show up, and so I had to sin. I had to take matters into my own hands. In chapter 15, he probably said, I did destroy the, the Amalekites, but I, I couldn't stop the people. They wanted to keep the spoils. In chapter 17, I know that I'm supposed to be the protector of Israel and trust in God and face this giant, but this giant is really strong and it's basically a suicide mission. So why would I go and risk my life when there's no way that I'm going to defeat him? In chapter 23, when he encounters David and believes that he has David hemmed him, it must be God's will for me to kill David. God must be on my side or else I wouldn't have this opportunity. In chapter 28, I know that God forbids consulting the dad, but what else am I going to do? I mean, 
I, I got to do something. God isn't answering me, and I, I prayed to Him. He doesn't isn't giving me guidance, and so I I got to take matters into my own hands. See, there are always reasons from a human standpoint why we shouldn't trust in God. There's always reasons or excuses. We can always manufacture these reasons why trusting in God is not the most logical thing to do. I'm trying to eat better and lose some weight, and I've had trouble doing that historically because I always have a really good reason not to do it. For example, I'll wake up and I'll be like, all right, today is the day I'm going to eat healthy and I'm going to make good choices. And then for lunch, I'll think of the pizza that I have in the fridge that's left over. And then I'll think to myself, well, I'm not going to throw the pizza out. I, I, somebody has to eat it, so I'll just eat it and I guess I'll just start eating healthy tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and it's a Friday. And then I'm going to have dinner and I think to myself, well, Friday's the only day that you can get a fish fry in a, a lot of places. So I, I guess I'll get a fish fry tonight and I'll start my diet tomorrow. And then the next day comes, it's a Saturday. And then I'm like, oh, well, I guess it's not really a good, good to start something new on a, uh, on the, at the end of the week. So I might as well just start fresh on Monday. And so Sunday, Saturday's a wash, Sunday's a wash. I get to Monday and then I go to the grocery store and I see that there's 75% off the Easter candy. And I think, what a great deal. When else could I get candy like this? I mean, I'd like to diet today, but look at all this candy. And I, and I would be making a bad financial decision if I didn't buy this candy. And so, you know, you make excuses and excuses and excuses, and I think that we can do that when we face trials especially. We can have this tendency to make excuses for our sin. And we have these reasons that maybe from our own perspective, from a human perspective, we feel like these reasons, we have good reasons not to trust in God. We look at our finances and we look at the pandemic and everything that's happening we think to ourselves, I mean, we don't know what the future is going to hold, and we don't know what our 401k is going to look like, and we don't know what the economy is going to be like, and we think to ourselves, well, in an environment like this, we should definitely be worried. We definitely should be concerned. And so rather than lean into God, we lean into our sin. Or maybe we experience additional stress in our relationships or just with everything going on, and then we lean into our addictions. You know, maybe some of us are dealing with uh, drug or alcohol addictions. And rather than give those things over to God, we think to ourselves, well, I need these things right now. I need them to cope. And then once everything is over again, then I'll figure this out and get this under control. Or maybe we're bored and we're not able to do the things that we normally do and then we think to ourselves, well, it's just a little bit of pornography. It's okay because there's not much else to do. Once everything gets back to normal, then I'll give that up. Or maybe we think to ourselves, should I really help those around me? 
I mean, I, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know if I'm going to have enough in the future. So if I see someone in need, I'm probably better off just keeping what I have for myself and letting them worry about themselves. And so we can have this tendency to create excuses for ourselves. And excuses often lead to indulgence. Trials lead to excuses, which leads to indulgence. Maybe we exploded our spouse and we think to ourselves, if he or she didn't do this or that, then I wouldn't have exploded. It's not really my fault. D.L. Moody once made a very insightful statement. He said this, Excuses are the cradle that Satan rocks men off to sleep in. Excuses are the cradle that Satan rocks men off to sleep in. Unexpected trials can lead us to excuses which can lead us to indulgence. And the scary thing is, once we start those excuses, once we get that ball rolling, it gets easier and easier to make more and more excuses. Zig Ziglar's brother was a judge, and he used to tell a story about a man who went to his next-door neighbor and asked him if he could borrow his lawnmower. And his next-door neighbor said that he would like to allow him to use the lawnmower, but all the flights had been canceled from New York to Los Angeles. The person borrowing asked him what canceled flights from New York to Los Angeles had to do with borrowing his lawnmower. He said it doesn't have anything to do with it, but if I don't want to let you I but I don't want to let you use my lawnmower, and one excuse is as good as another. I think that's where Saul is. It's not about the circumstance. It's about the state of his heart. It doesn't matter what the trial is. He has a reason not to trust in God. And if we're not careful, we can get to that point where there's always a reason that not to trust in God. We can get to the point where it's always easier to lean into our sin than to lean into our Savior. It's easier than we might think. So that's the negative we see Saul who every opportunity that he had he tried to subvert God's plan and to take matters into his own hand. But then we see another character in the Scripture in 1 Samuel, David, who was a man after God's own heart. And we know from the story of Scripture that David was by no means perfect. He had many faults, many flaws. There were some times where he didn't live up to the standard, where he didn't trust in God. But in this early stage in 1 Samuel, we see that the predominant mode of his heart is trusting in God. David found himself in a number of trials where he could have made up excuses why he shouldn't trust in God. He faces Goliath, and he could have thought to himself, well, somebody else is much better qualified to face the giant than I am. I mean, you could have probably counted hundreds of people who are more qualified than David. He could have talked about the, the used the armor and the size and the strength of Goliath as an excuse why he wasn't the right person to fight Goliath. And yet he walks forward in obedience. And as we looked at last week, he sees the giant as an opportunity to declare to the world how great his God is. In chapter 30, the Amalekites come and attack the city of Ziglag and captured David's wives and his men's wives and children. 
And this was one of the most difficult periods of David's life. If there was any time when he was going to give in to sin, this would have been the time. His men are threatening to stone him. His family has been taken away. And yet he finds his hope in God. 1 Samuel 30 verse 6 says this, And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. All those things were going on. That trial was one of the lowest points most likely in his life. And yet he finds his delight. He finds his strength in the Lord his God. In chapter 24, we see that as Saul is chasing after David, David and his men go into a cave and hide. As God would have it, Duty calls. Saul has to go to the bathroom. And so Saul goes into this cave where David is, not knowing David is in there. And David sees him. His men see, that, see Saul. And his men say, here he is. God has given him into your hands. Now go and kill this person. Kill this person who has tried to destroy you. And yet David says, I will not harm God's anointed. He, make, he resolves in his heart that even though he has the opportunity to kill Saul, God had put him in place. And God hadn't taken him off the throne yet. And so he says, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. Even when it seems like this is an opportunity of the opportunity of a lifetime, I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. And you think of these saw David's men and talking to David like, do you, do you realize he was trying to kill you? Do you realize you're going to be the king anyways? Do you realize this could make all of your problems go away and yet still David stays faithful to the Lord and doesn't want to sin in destroying God's anointed? David doesn't give in to excuses. Remember Jesus who was tempted in the wilderness by Satan He has just completed a 40-day fast, and he's extremely hungry. And Satan comes to him and says, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Now, there was a lot of human logic to that. I mean, he had completed his fast. He didn't have to keep going with that fast. He deserved it. He was the Son of God. He had the power to do that. And yet, Jesus didn't give in to those excuses. He said, man does not live by bread alone. Then Satan takes him and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and says, if you bow down and worship me, you can have authority over all these things. From a human standpoint, maybe this would seem like a shortcut to the path that God had for Jesus. And yet, he says to Satan, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. Then Satan takes Jesus up to the top of the temple He says, why don't you throw yourself down from this temple and then the angels will come and rescue you. From a human standpoint, there would be a lot of logic to this. For example, if you wanted to show the world how great you were and wanted to show the world that you were the son of God, what better demonstration than throwing yourself down from the top of the temple and watching the, everyone could see the angels rescuing you. 
And yet Jesus says it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus comes to the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he asks the Lord if there's any other way. Take this cup from me. And yet Jesus wants to do God's will above all. And he doesn't give in to any excuses. He could have said the road is just a little bit too hard. I mean, I'm the Son of God. I came from the throne room of heaven. This is too difficult a path. It's too painful of a path for me to go, walk on. He could have said, well, some of the people that I'm going to die for are not going to accept me. Even the people who do accept me, sometimes they're not going to appreciate what I did for them. He could have given into a multitude of excuses why it was a good idea not to follow God's plan, not to go to the cross, and yet he stayed faithful. He did what God called him to do. Unexpected trials will cause us to either lean into our sin or to lean into our Savior. In the midst of our trials, many excuses will come why we shouldn't trust in God. Why it makes more sense to trust in ourselves and to lean into our sin than to trust in God. Yet God sees when we trust in Him. He sees our faith, however weak it may be, and He will reward us. He will see us through when we look to Him and lean into Him as our Lord and Savior and as our perfect Heavenly Father. James 1, 6 or one twelve says this, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I believe one of the supreme questions that God would ask us today, that God would ask the church in America is, will you stay faithful? When you experience trials, will you lean into me? Will you trust in me as your Savior and sustainer? Will you trust in me when Christianity isn't comfortable, when it isn't easy? Will you trust in me when the stresses of life are piling up and when we don't see a way out of the darkness? Will you trust in me even then? John W. Yates shared a letter that was written by a missionary who had gone into the jungles of New Guinea and who experienced incredible hardships. The letter went like this. It said, Man, it's great to be in the thick of the fight, to draw the old devil's heaviest guns, to have him at you with depression and discouragement, slander, disease. He doesn't waste time. He hits good and hard when a, hard when a fellow is hitting him. You can always measure the weight of your blow by the one you get back. When you're on your back with fever and at your last ounce of strength, when some of your converts backslide, when you learn that your most promising inquirers are only fooling, when your mail gets held up and some don't bother to answer your letters, is that the time to put, out, put on your morning suit? No, sir. That's the time to pull out the stops and shout hallelujah. The old fellow's getting it in the neck and he's giving it back. And all of heaven is watching over the battlements. Will he stick it out? And as they see who is with us, 
as they see around us the unlimited reserves, the boundless resources, as they see the impossibility of failure with God, how disgusted and sad they must be when we run away. Glory to God, he writes, we're not going to run away. We're going to stand. Ladies and gentlemen, let's lean into our Savior during this time. Because when we do, He will see us through. And when we do, we are promised that there is a reward that is waiting for us. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let's stand tall, church. Let's not allow trials to turn us from God. Let's allow trials to move us closer in our relationship to God. Let's pray. God, you are good and your love endures forever. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who can be trusted. We thank you that you are a God without compare, without equal. We thank you that we need not fear the coming storm, that we need not fear the attacks of the enemy. We need not fear anything this world throws at us because we know that you've conquered all things. We know that you won't allow anything in our life that's not for our good and for your glory. Lord, in the midst of trials, unexpected trials especially, Lord, I pray that we would use these times to draw closer to you, to lean into you and your goodness. Lord, I pray that we would forsake wickedness, that we would repent of trusting in ourselves and trusting in our own devices and our own ways to satisfy our souls. We'd look to you, the author and sustainer of our faith. And that as David looked to you to strengthen him, that we would find our strength and find our hope in our relationship with you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.